Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hi, uh, thanks for listening. Today I'm going to be joined by Stephanie Grace, the political columnist here at The Advocate, and Andrea Gallo, who covers uh, state politics and is part of our investigative team. We were going to talk a little bit today about some stories that have been in the news that have kind of caused a reevaluation or a fresh evaluation of Bobby Jindal's legacy as governor. Um, first was the uh, story we published last week, Andrea, that you wrote about the um, ethics board and sort of how ethics enforcement has changed in the era since Bobby Jindal uh, came into office really on this promise to reform our ethics laws. And maybe, Andrew, can you just start by telling us a little bit of what you found out? I know it was a little bit of a hard thing to get your arms around, but what did, how has ethics enforcement changed since 2008? Right, well, whenever we looked at the numbers, unfortunately, the ethics board has not tracked um, numbers of enforcement, like numbers of charges and things like that. Um, until the past few years. But even looking at those, we've seen a huge drop off in the number of people being charged um, ever since the 2008 reforms. Uh, Back in 2012, the numbers were like over 100 people a year getting charged with ethics violations. And then uh, last year in 2018, there were only 20 people with charges filed against them. And then when you looked at the um, the charges themselves, they also weren't necessarily um, against super high profile political. Like they figures. weren't necessarily substantive charges in some cases. Right. I mean, two of them, for example, were charges against substitute school bus drivers in Washita Parish who had not completed their ethics training. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure we all sleep better knowing those guys got in trouble. Sounds right. like a presidential platform to me for Bobby <laughs> So, uh, again, it's difficult, as you said, to uh, measure pre and post, partly because we don't have pre-2008 statistics, but also there's, there's uh, it's impossible to know precisely how much unethical behavior occurred in any given year. But, but we did find that the number of charges has gone down pretty steeply, and we also found that the uh, the complexity of the cases are often the cases were were just not very um, they weren't addressing like a major conflict of interest they were sort of like the school bus driver cases you're talking about another thing we found I think was just that these take forever and you focused on the story on the case of Senator former state Senator Rob Mariano uh, tell us a little bit about his case. So Rob Marino received ethics charges in 2010 over an incident that happened in 2009. He was representing Bernhard Mechanical when they were in a lawsuit with LSU over a power plant. And uh, the allegation is that Senator Marino at the time tried to strike this deal with LSU 
where the state legislature, who was not a party to the case, would appropriate money to help settle the case. So the allegation is that he was trying to steer public funds toward a settlement and that he had a contingency fee of more than a million dollars that would have essentially been paid for by these public funds. And, you know, when you look at the documentation at the time, LSU officials definitely felt pressured into accepting that settlement um, because of the level of influence that Marino commanded at the time. And All there was this a, happened. Oh, go on. I'm sorry. And there was there was a feeling, I think, among some people that this was a clear conflict of interest, too. In other words, here's a senator who controls a lot of the purse strings for the state, and he's saying, I'll get state money if you settle this, I'll, I'll arrange to have some state money and then I'll get a piece of that, which creates a conflict in most people's minds, I would think. But that was not what Rob Marino was actually charged with, right? Right. So the ethics board only charged him with failing to disclose that Bernhard was one of his clients. And the ethics board uh, said in their charges that uh, members of the legislature or public servants are required to disclose to ethics whenever they're representing an interest in like a um, legal dispute against the state of Louisiana right. because LSU is a state entity. Probably for this very reason. <laughs> but right. but so in other words, they charge him with what you would consider sort of a minor violation when there's potentially a much bigger one right in front of their face, which they describe in the document charging him, right? Yes, the document that charges him lays out the fact that he had a contingency fee, the fact that he had this meeting uh, where he, you know, discussed these settlement negotiations, but then the charge itself is only the failure to disclose. But even though the charge is, you know, relatively weak, the ethics board chairman at the time that this happened, Frank Simino, said that he remembered the case very well and he considered it the most egregious case he saw in his several years on the ethics mm. board. And he was also appalled to learn that this case was still unresolved, right? It's been nine years since Rob Marino was charged and we're still waiting on some outcome. Right. The case is unresolved. The ethics board discussed it in a closed door executive session last Thursday, but we have not um, gotten any word of an outcome since then. And had they voted on some sort of action to take on it, I believe that vote would have had to be public. Is, is it clear why it's unresolved after all this time? That's a good question. Um, so Rob Marino filed a lawsuit against the ethics board is the short answer to it. And that lawsuit uh, was originally filed in the 18th Judicial District. It got moved to the 19th Judicial District. And it's been um, kind of going up and down the judicial uh, system since then, appeals on certain things. And so it's basically uh, just been sitting in the 19th JDC for several years. Um, another thing that your story laid out, though, is that this the reforms one of one aspect of the or one outcome of the reforms is that it tends to just take a long time a longer time than it used to to resolve some of these cases and i think you described the case of former house speaker charlie witt who was accused of a conflict and the case was resolved within months like the the story was still in the headlines when it got resolved and here you've got rob mariano who 
you know, his successor has almost been term limited out of office. So mm-hmm. at one time, this was a scandal that was on the front page of the newspaper, and now people have totally forgotten it. Um, and and I think our reporting showed that the slowness had partly to do with that there was an effort to create more due process, I guess, with this, but with right. the reforms, but the due process. Not that anyone's against due process, but an aspect of it was that it really gums up the works. And these are and these are not cases that send down. people to jail or anything. Right, right. These ethics adjudicatory board cases, once charges are filed against somebody, it kind of moves into this division of administrative law realm. And the we calculated for all the cases that the division of administrative law um, resolved in 2018. The median time frame uh, it took to resolve those cases was four years, wow. so it's definitely a long time. Um, so, I guess the big takeaway from this was, you know, long, longer, t- longer processing times, and uh, not necessarily substantive charges being brought, and in a gradual d- diminishment of the number of cases brought. Um, was there anything else that uh, that we learned from this? I think those were the biggest aspects of it. And I think that um, we were hearing from a lot of people that they felt like the ethics board targeted low-hanging fruit and that even if they wanted to uh, pursue harder-hitting ethics cases, they might not have that ability because of rulings from the courts along the way that have curbed their authority or because of the way that the laws are written. Hmm. Um, Steph, I wanted to ask you, so obviously the ethics reforms were, were Bobby Jindal's big thing when he came in. That was the the first order of business. It was, I'm going to clean up Louisiana's image with this gold standard. Um, he did in a special session He called that he called immediately. He couldn't even wait until the regular session. He wanted this to happen quickly. And so this was like a real signature thing, and he kind of got everything he wanted. But, of course, it's taken a long time to sort through what really changed. Um, but it seems like maybe we didn't get what we were told we were getting here. Well, one of the things Bobby Jindal always talked about was these national rankings that send signals to companies whether this is a good place to invest, whether you can do business in Louisiana. And a lot of this was kind of designed to almost game those rankings. Right. So there was some success there. So (laughs) the question is, do we have better ethics enforcement? Right. And I feel like we gamed the, those ratings more successfully at the beginning and right. on more recent, um, some of our reporting with ProPublica last year showed that we had fallen pretty far on some of those lists too. Not not that I think those lists are a great right. goal to shoot for, but, but that the gaming, the successful gaming of right. the list didn't even last that long. Right. And I do remember back at the beginning, there was, there was some debate over what Andre was mentioning about, you know, making how much these should be administrative law cases and, and things like that. But it was hard for a lay person to kind of understand what the implications of those changes might be. So I right. I certainly, I don't think that there was ever, and Andrea, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we were ever told that this is going to make these cases take a lot longer and that, um, you know, that there would be, you know, that they expected fewer 
cases would be brought. I mean, I know some of the proponents of this are suggesting, or at least one proponent, which was Jindal's former uh, Jimmy Faircloth, who handled some high-profile cases for, for Bobby Jindal, has suggested maybe we just have more ethical behavior as a result of the reforms. But um, he's about the only person we talked to who said that. Right, <laughs> uh-huh. right, right. At the time, um, the from my understanding and what Jimmy Faircloth continues to say today is that the creation of the ethics adjudicatory board was meant to make the process quicker and more professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so that's obviously one big pillar of Bobby Jindal's legacy. That's, that's kind of been, uh, you, you know, it has not looked as good in hindsight as maybe it did at the beginning. Not that everybody thought that this was as great as it was as, he did maybe, but it's it, the longer we've lived with this system, maybe the less great it looks. And then, Steph, I wanted to talk about another recent bit of journalism, which was a series that the Times Picayune and Fox Eight did on the voucher program, which I, which I'd say was kind of another of if Bobby Jindal had another pillar to his mm-hmm. administration, that was probably the other big one or one of the other big ones. Well, what these two really have in common is. The ethics push came immediately after he was elected the first time. The voucher push came immediately after he was elected the second time. So he was really trying to take advantage of the momentum. Of course, he was elected by huge margins both times, and this was what he wanted to do with the momentum he got coming out of those elections. Vouchers was interesting because he combined it with a larger a school reform package that was really about accountability for public schools in a lot of ways. It was reducing teacher tenure, more performance-based um, retention and pay. It was expanding vouchers. It was, I'm sorry, expanding public school charters, which, you know, the argument being that this was a way to create better schools, let, let parents kind of shop around a little bit, but there was a lot of accountability attached to it. And then there was vouchers, which is a very popular issue among a certain segment of the electorate, uh, the religious right. And what was interesting about it was it was all part of one package that he pushed through in really kind of, um, some would say, bullying form. You know, Uh, they held they held hearings at the beginning of the session and didn't let them drag on. They held them late at night. They made it difficult for teachers to attend, things like that. And they really kind of co-opted some of the people who supported public school charters because it was all one package. So they might have fought for more accountability on the public money to private school end, but they, they really didn't. And what we ended up with was a system where, as Jindal kind of put it, parents know best that parents were the accountability. This public money could follow students who were in C and below schools to a private, often religious school, and that was the accountability. But they weren't subject to the same ratings that public schools were subject to. Uh, it took a big fight to even get them to be to, the individual students to be subject to the same tests. Right. Um, and the idea that because the schools weren't graded, it's harder for parents to find out are they are they putting their kids in a in a better school. And what this investigation found was, in many cases, they were not. Right, and, and it's not the easiest thing, I guess, to figure out because they don't these these ratings are not as easy to follow, and, and mm-hmm. I think the news organizations had to devise a methodology right. for doing this. But what they found out was that 
a lot of the schools that these kids are going to are in fact worse than the ones they were attending before as measured by those students leap scores. So in other words, if you were a student who was going to a C school and then you switch to a private school under a voucher, you might, you and the other students who are on the vouchers at that school might average a D and the investigation found that that indeed yeah. did happen. Yeah. Um, but it, it, again, it hasn't been an easy thing for the public to understand. In right. fact, I think one of the powerful details of this investigation was that the parents that they talked to mm -hmm. about this, in many cases, didn't even realize this. So, right, which kind of flies in the face of this argument that parents are the accountability. Right. Um, they need information just like public school parents do. Right. And, um, and then you figure out how to maneuver in the system, which, of course, is very complicated. But what I, what I thought was so interesting about these two news stories, these two evaluations, looking back at the big Jindal initiatives, um, we've been talking about Jindal's legacy really since he left office. It's been three years. And we've, because the story that has been in the news constantly is the budget. Right. That we, he left behind this huge hole that the legislature and Governor Edwards have been working to fix, fighting over fixing, really for three years. And that stemmed from his refusal to raise taxes, some kind of drastic tax cutting in some cases, uh, rating trust funds, really just not investing at all in higher education, things like that, and, and, and putting things off until the next person took over and the next person did take over and, right. and there was a big mess. So that's, Jindal's legacy really wasn't looking that great to a lot of people anyway. <sighs> And that was really over the budget. But when you take a step back and look at some of the other things he did, right? maybe it's even worse than we were thinking. In other words, everyone sort of knew the budget was a smoking ruin right. and, and it was a crisis that had to be dealt with immediately, whereas vouchers and ethics were more um, sort of, you know, they were just going along and they weren't right. like crises. And the voucher right. program has kind of been you know, stumbling along at the same size that it's been right. and so forth. And that's partly due to the fact that there isn't state money to expand it. Yeah. And also that John Bell Edwards is not a supporter. Of right, it. right. But it is, you know, there have been kids going to these schools for many years now. I mean, it does, it does matter. Yeah, yeah. And as the uh, series also pointed out, this has been a big shot in the arm for Catholics, struggling Catholic schools mm -hmm. in particular, uh, it, particularly in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Um, I think they now account for something like 10% of the enrollment there. Right, and that's part of a larger story about what's happening in the Catholic school world. Yeah. And again, I don't think you can overemphasize how much this would have been connected to Bobby Jindal's presidential aspirations, because this is really an important issue to a certain constituency right. he was hoping to tap into. I mean, look at Betsy DeVos, it's her issue. That's, you know, there's a there's a community out there in the Republican Party that really supports privatizing public education. And right. this is a piece of it. And in some cases, blurring the line between public schools and religious schools. And this is a piece of that. Right. Well, um, I think that's probably about all the time we have. But thank you both so much for joining me today. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.